to do? Making a video. Making a video. Hello and welcome to the 80th episode of Rank and Review. Yes, you heard that correctly. The 80th, 80th episode of Rank and Review. And uh, our current champion, Matthew Risling, is going to join me once again to discuss ghosts. We're going to finally put our poltergeist discussions to bed. Um, this interview was recorded over Skype from the big shitty of Toronto and uh, there's a little bit of Skype interference here and there. I did my best to clean it up. I think it's totally listenable, but I'm just giving you the heads up. This is a Skype interview, and uh, so that's what it sounds like. Uh, it's worth listening to, too, because we discuss six pretty interesting ghost movies, and I think you're in for a treat. As usual, you shall expect coarse language and spoilers for the six movies discussed. As usual, you should send your feedback to your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. That's me, uh, at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. If you also want to help out the show, you can throw me a like on our Facebook page and throw me a positive review on iTunes. Those are the two places where I will personally see and, and, and appreciate the feedback. So uh, thank you guys so much for your continued support of my podcast, and I hope you enjoy episode 80, Poltergeist. Okay, so there it is. Uh, you always seem to hit the round numbers, Matthew. This is the 80th episode. Oh, of nice. Rankin it's because I'm your most important guest. <laughs> yeah. I think you were here for the 40th and the 30th. You, you, you nice to hit the, those round numbers for some reason. I don't know what that's about. So that means for sure I'm doing the 100th, your centennial episode. <laughs> well, you booked that already. You, you, made that, uh, you made that request, and you were the first to ask, so you win. <laughs> Guess what we're here to talk about today, ladies and gentlemen? Matthew Risling, our current champion, is back with us. What else would we be talking about but ghosts? <laughs> and Yeah, and uh, this is a particularly special 80th episode because I think I'm here to announce my retirement from the subject of ghosts. Not from the podcast. Uh, unless I get roped in. <laughs> Not from the podcast, but it's time to, to expand my horizons. I feel like the training wheels can start coming off now and I can start talking about more... Uh, uh, grown-up topics <laughs> more grown-up than ghosts like let's say picking something out of the air monsters <laughs> sea monsters even. sea monsters even water mud well, well we'll just let it happen we'll let it be what it is okay so uh i don't know what to sort of ask and by way of introduction we've gone over this so many times already in the past basically we're here to bring closure on poltergeist <laughs> <laughs> that was the only way you could get me to do another ghost episode is I have to put that one down so, and then this is going to be the end but with a question mark had this this poltergeist movie been more successful and they made a sequel of it this could have gone on indefinitely then. 
<laughs> well, uh, not to give away any spoilers, but it didn't. <laughs> it won't surprise anybody to learn that it didn't get any sequels. No sequels. Strange. Strange. Do we really need to say anything more about ghosts? I mean, uh, for this list, um, you were going out on it, and I was building it around the poltergeist. So these were either movies that were brand new or new to me, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> Uh, and I was trying to come up with, like, was there some sort of theme or something that I could, like, mine out of all of this? They go from, like, absolutely straight, almost, like, by-the-numbers specific familiar ghost story to just batshit crazy and everywhere in between. So going into this, your, your fifth round of ghosts, uh, how angry are you with me right now? Um, not particularly particularly angry but not particularly loving you either um this is uh this is a list without any nowhere near as bad as my first list for example yeah um but it doesn't have any real standout winners like that time that we did um devil's backbone uh, devil's backbone yeah in or or even the conjuring really yeah in keepers yeah yeah no uh um a lot of middle ground here and that's actually tricky from like a review standpoint i remember I was like looking at these i rewatched these you know watching not to tip my hand too soon but watching the woman black 2 and again it was amazing how little i'd remembered about that movie <laughs> uh, yeah i don't want to say too much about that because we will have a chance to talk about it but it really isn't the kind of movie that sticks in your brain too much i mean woman in black one didn't really stick with me uh very much i had to go back to wikipedia and go over the first one because i'd sort of forgotten the finer points and i wanted it to be primed uh, but number two certainly is less memorable uh the other theme is this feels like the exposition dump list where a lot of these movies have these big exposition dumpy scenes which i don't think i don't think we've seen it to this extent on any of the other lists that i've watched but that does seem to be a common feature of a lot of these well uh i don't know what more to say so i think we'll just jump in i'll list off the six movies that we're going to talk about and then we shall talk about them um how's it how are you feeling champion are you going to double down on your belt today oh for sure for sure (laughs) Sure, I'm going to get another juicy gift here. <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to look at The Awakening, starring a very attractive and talented British actress named Rebecca Hall. We're going to look at the aforementioned <laughs> Woman in Black, Angel of Death, the sequel to the movie we reviewed on your previous podcast. We're going to look at We Are Still Here, probably the most recent of the movies that we're talking about. Um from the director of the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th, Exeter, uh, we have <laughs> another period horror movie called The Quiet Ones. And yes, we are going to finish with the nouveau version of Poltergeist, starring rank and review favorite Sam Rockwell. One, two, three, go. Uh, let's do it. Boom. These boys aren't worried about bumps in the night. They are frightened to death. Living you want to watch out for, not the dead. Something is causing this. Why do you keep your eyes closed, Bond? Lock the house. There was a man! There was! There was a man! Why are you doing this? Get away! 
So The Awakening is a period horror ghost story, um, and I think it's probably the most familiar as far as its structure that we have in this list. It reminds me very much, actually, the first episode of Ghosts you did with me, I believe. We did this movie called Haunted. Yeah, that was actually my very first note uh, that I took for this movie, as it seemed a lot like that Aiden Quinn movie that we opened with. Yeah, instead of Aiden Quinn, we have a super attractive uh, British lady played by (laughs) Rebecca Hall. Who is a very, uh, you know, skeptical-natured person. She, much like the Aiden Quinn character in Haunted, has basically made her fame disproving things. And she gets summoned to this school where they believe they are having a haunting. And lo and behold, it holds many dark secrets, including connections to her past. Such as the basic and familiar story of Awakenings. Does it do anything to elevate itself in the genre? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that's something, when I was watching this, it seemed like an updated move, uh, the updated version of the, the uh, one that, from the first list. Uh, and I kept waiting, because it, it seemed like it was going nowhere, and then it seemed like it was going somewhere, and then it seemed like it was going nowhere. And then I, I come down on the end that it eventually went somewhere. <laughs> but the fact that I had to ask myself so frequently throughout it if it was going somewhere, uh, um, it wasn't like a a real grab you by the testicles twist at the end, but it it came together in a very nice kind of complete way. That's what I would say. Whereas I kept on uh, underestimating the movie, I kept on being surprised by it minimally. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, uh, I, I kept on thinking I knew this movie's number. I kind of knew what it was doing. And in a lot of ways, I did. I mean, of course, this place is connected to her past. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know, certain characters are going to turn out to know more than they reveal. Like, a lot of those type of reveals didn't really do it for me. It was smaller moments in the movie that did it for me. Uh, like what kind of stuff? Um I enjoyed the the first genuine jump scare she gets when she gets pulled off of the dock into the water, or so she seems, or so she thinks. Right. And uh, a lot of her ghost traps, a lot of the old school sort of charming, like based on chalk and light bulbs, sort of booby traps that she sets around the house, and the payoffs that those sort of pay bring. Uh, I enjoyed that aspect of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes out that, oh, she actually was a child in this school and, oh, you know, she's directly connected, none of that really felt like a big revelation to me. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my finest, uh, finest final uh, lines that I wrote about it. Um, well, do we want to do the plot dump now and then we can get into how it comes together, like to go through some of the particulars of the mystery? The mystery. Well, like I say, she's summoned to the school because they want to determine whether or not there's a ghost there. Um, the headmistress of the place, Imelda Staunton, however you say that name, uh, there's something about how uh, attentive she is to the Rebecca Hall character and the way she is so direct to her that I always feel like there's going to be a card that she's going to play sooner or later in, in, the, in the piece. Uh, that's I don't know if that's me bringing baggage from watching so many movies, but as far as the plot, that is the plot. At first, she's trying to decide, like, is this place haunted or is it a sham? And then when she gets sucked into the real mystery and sort of the connection with her personal past, it's her wrestling with that, you know? Is this legit supernatural or is she sort of coming unglued? 
Well, yeah, and there's this little kid, uh, I believe his name is Tom, uh, whom she's trying to protect. It seems like he thinks that there's a ghost boy that's going to kill him. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's trying to protect him throughout the movie and is forming a relationship with him. Um, And for a lot of the movie, I was thinking he's doing a bunch of suspicious stuff that I'm sure this little kid's got to be a ghost. But at the same time, there were there were um, there would be scenes where other people would talk to him, particularly the Imelda Staunton character, uh, whose name was Maud, uh, who had the Donald Trump haircut. That was something <laughs> I was watching. This was somebody that pointed out that her hair looked like oh, Donald no. Trump. No, I'm so glad I didn't put that <laughs> it was together. A hard to take her seriously after that. <laughs> She was acting, or sorry, the little kid was acting kind of ghosty, but it seemed like there were not continuity problems. Um, it, it felt like I couldn't tell if the movie was slipping up and having characters acknowledge him if he was a ghost, that they shouldn't be able to acknowledge him. Um, but that they did, did a good job of wrapping that up with her, where it turns out that she knows about the ghost, and we're just going to go full spoilers absolutely let's do it okay so as it turns out uh she was the little boy's mother the little boy is a ghost and the little boy was the half brother to our protagonist uh so before this house was an orphanage it was a private residence where our protagonist had grown up and her she made father... up this whole alternate childhood that she grew up in Africa or something like this. But yeah. yeah, we find out she was raised in that house and she was witness to the death. Basically, right? Yeah. Um, and this whole repress it all thing, I think that the way they were trying to show us this is the Dominic West character, who's this sort of war veteran suffering from post-traumatic stress in a world where post-traumatic stress isn't sort of acknowledged. Uh, he sees ghosts and believes in ghosts. I think that sort of part of being a damaged person is part of what opens the window for you to that. So I think we were supposed to be paying right. attention to him, but instead we're paying attention to the little boy. You know, we because we're waiting for the twist. The little boy's actually a ghost, or they're all actually a ghost. Uh, we kind of outsmart ourselves. That's what I'm saying. I'm not sure if it's the movie that's really smart, or if you, know, <laughs> if it, if we kind of. Uh, are trying to outsmart the movie and, and instead of, you know, keep on anticipating it incorrectly. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, well, I mean, it didn't drop really that many clues. So, so when we get the big reveal at the end and she has her memories that come back and when she thought that she was dubbed Mousy by this tribe in Africa whom she had remembered raising her, it was actually she was remembering that she used to be called Mousy uh, when she had this scar on her body from when she remembered being attacked by a lion, it's because <clears throat> when her father uh, was it was he her father? He was her father, right? I thought that he was like her stepfather he was the direct father of the boy and the stepfather of her he was leaving and going on a rampage, he wanted to retrieve his son right. from the wall and inadvertently ended up killing his son. Right. When when that happened, she, uh, that happened in their drawing room or something like that. And she was looking at a very famous painting by an 18th century painter by the name of George Stubbs called um, A Lion Attacking a Horse. There it was. So she, she had had that lion attack imprinted in her head when her brother was killed. So that's where the story about her getting attacked by a lion came from. Yeah. 
So, like, none of this is stuff that we could have ever been reasonably expected to figure out as an audience. No. But when it wrapped up, it kind of wrapped up nicely. Um, there, there was another scene. This is right shortly after she had fallen off the dock, um, and the little kid, uh, the little kid was being a little bit spooky to her, and then she freaked out on him. I can't remember exactly what caused her to freak out on him. But then Maud, the Donald Trump-looking woman. <laughs> Emilda Staunton, yes. And she started uh, yelling things like, I thought you were a kind, loving girl, but there's nothing left. And that seemed very abrupt. Like, right. it felt over-directed or something to me. I couldn't figure out why this woman, whom she barely knew, was being such a bitch to her. And that pays off later. Yeah, and also the line, um, but there's nothing There's nothing left. I'm like, what, what are you talking about you just met like 24 hours ago but of course they had met several years ago and when I first saw that I saw that as I'm not sure if it registered with you or how it registered uh, with me it registered as a bit of a script problem like maybe there were some scenes missing or maybe the writer the director um, expected us to know too much about these characters or, or just the writer or the director knew too much about these characters and um, just wasn't handling it very elegantly yeah yeah, I feel like the, the the writer and the director, they knew every corner. They've been over everything in this. It was perfect in their head. And they kind of expected it to be perfect in our head too, right? But not all the pieces were there. Like you say, this was not a solvable mystery, which I think takes away from the twist a little bit. But I still think that it works in, in its individual beats. To, to uh, peel back... Yeah, and I... Oh, just I, I didn't see it as a huge problem um, that, that the... Like, when I was watching it, I thought the writer and or director uh, were expecting us to know too much. But when it came to the reveal, everything sort of fell into its place. And I thought it wasn't it wasn't the best movie, but I did like it. And it all like everything that I was having problems with as I was watching it was resolving itself and resolving itself reasonably well. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I thought it was quite well crafted as far as that goes. Yeah. And like it works. It's. It's hard to get enthusiastic for me about the awakenings, but it's hard for me to say we like where it did anything particularly wrong. I I got to give it some points too for having uh, equal opportunity eye candy. <laughs> we have a sequence with Rebecca Hall in the bathtub, and then another scene where she's spying on uh, Dominic West when he's very underdressed. <laughs> um, Which was one of the ickiest scenes for me because he was uh, like cutting his leg with a razor, and it yeah. felt really visceral and horrible but uh that's where he's coming from that's where he's a very damaged character but he seemed to know that he was damaged where rebecca hall's character was damaged and she didn't know it <laughs> she uh she had this all revealed to her quite horrifyingly um it's well made it's just very familiar i guess is where i wash up on the awakening like other than a little bit of nudity here and there, it's a fairly PG affair. You can watch it with your moms, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to offend anyone. It's not too visceral. It's not too violent. It's a good old-fashioned ghost story. There just happens to be a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, there's actually one thing. Uh, there was a, a couple of other things that I liked. Uh, there was a scene where she was going through a creepy dollhouse that mm -hmm. I thought uh, that, that was working well for me. It was fairly tense. The discovery of the um, passageways was interesting, too. Because uh, it, it wasn't, it was a double discovery for her. A, it was a secret passage that could explain how someone could be pulling off these ghost pranks. But B, it was a secret passage that she'd been in before that started to open things up for her. Yeah. 
So um, another thing that I thought worked well direction wise, and this was actually something that I saw in a few of these movies. I'm hoping is going to become a regular thing in a convention for ghost movies, is they were really sparing with the ambient music. Yes. So a lot of the walking around the old house, there we didn't have to have string instruments telling us how we should experience this scene emotionally. Um, there were creaky floorboards and lighting and shadows that were, was doing all of that for us. A door hinge or a floorboard will do just nicely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Getting on to something. Well, two things that I didn't like, one thing that I kind of didn't like. And one thing that I is getting into pet peeve territory for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that I kind of didn't like, and I mentioned this with other movies, I can't remember which ones, but it's come up. The color wash, like there's things are digitally, uh, it's basically given a Game of Thrones watch, wash where everything is sort of that drab. Mm. I don't know how you would describe it. Everything's in like, a, I, they're trying to make it like a sepia toned period movie, yeah. but it just feels, it feels cheap to me. Yeah. It, like it, it looks like instead a newspaper of making it that's look been like in the sun actual... too long. You know, it just, uh, but it's so conscious, it's so obviously been treated. I mean, I think part of it is not even just for the ambience, but to sell the period of it. I think that they had the one location, but everything around it, they were just trying to cover as best they could. You know? Yeah, but they, I mean, they did have sunlight in in the interwar period, That's right? True. Like, there's just something in the language of cinema. Now we've just grown accustomed to this particular really digital-looking color wash equals it took place in history, and it's getting time to do away with that. Yeah. I think that's becoming more of a distraction than than an effect to me and it is a thing that will date your movie and that's unfortunate because i find movies that are made to period usually tend to age quite well yeah yeah that's going to be the one thing that's going to make this movie look oh oh my god that is so 2014 or 2012 or whenever it was made but i think the The thing that's the basic the basic a b and c of the story works solidly though and will you know, like, like, there's nothing that I can say loudly bad structurally wrong with the movie. Uh, it held my interest, but it probably won't hold in my memory. Well, there is actually a story thing. Um, this is the thing that's getting into pet peeve territory with, with me. Not quite as intensely as with you and characters dying and coming back <laughs> as ghosts to save the day. But it's, it's getting there. And it is the repressed memory twist ending. Like, there's no... There's no particular reason why she would have forgotten everything. Um, this is one of those things that happened a lot in, f- like, sort of folklore psychology of the 70s and 80s, that, yeah. that people would, would experience these traumas and just everything would be a blank. Yeah, you didn't remember it is, the it satanic is cult that took you out into the woods until you were in your 30s for some reason, right? Or, or, yeah, or was that all yeah. just maybe bullshit? <laughs> Well, so, I mean, what you will find is if there's intense ongoing trauma, people will tend to just have these blank spots in their memory where they they just don't write as many memories or they don't, they're not able to retrieve them like that. But that one traumatic instance that makes you forget your entire childhood, as far as I know, that if it does happen, it doesn't happen nearly as much as it does in cinema. Yeah. And so that felt like a little bit of a cheat to me. It's sort of like amnesia, you know, that you know, someone gets bonked on the head in the movie and, oh, they don't remember anything. They sort of play that off as like something <laughs> the doctors see all the time. No, not so much. Also, I mean, if you want to nitpick like that, 
I was told that, you know, if you get hit in the head, like, hard enough to be rendered unconscious, like, that's a life-endangering injury, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's How many times do we see in a movie someone get clubbed in the back of the head, and the next scene they're just dusting themselves off, right? Yeah. I think, you know, we got to give, you know, movies get away with shit like that somehow. (laughs) Well, it could be. And, And, I mean... Like I said, I thought they did a reasonably good job of at least when she was going through that traumatic period, she saw the painting of the lion, and so she replaced the memory and came up with the whole Africa thing. So structurally it worked. But, I mean, I don't know if it's really nitpicky if it's the major plot point. Yeah. Or at least it's the next time I see this happen in a movie, I, I won't buy it at all. Maybe yeah. this was like the, the last, last time, time I could ever see that and not freak out. I think we just go... So see- yeah, hear this, Hollywood. You are you are now officially on notice <laughs> for the repressed memory twist. I think that it was just that we got the reveal and the explanation for the reveal simultaneously. Whereas if we were shown the explanation earlier, but we didn't know that that's what it was. I don't know. I don't know. I get where you're coming from, and I get that, you know, amnesia or, or childhood repression, they go to that well a lot. But the same thing with the skeptical character coming to an old English manor to determine whether or not <laughs> there's a ghost. Like, this is tired territory. In the marsh lies a house. There it is. Theo Marsh House. Abandoned for years. Does anybody else live on the island? The place has been deserted for years. That hides the darkness beyond all fears. So cold in here. She never forgives. Hello? She always comes back. Are you sure there's nobody else living here? There is no escaping the woman in black. The last time you were on the podcast, we discussed Woman in Black, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, and uh, I said a lot of things like, uh, very positive about it, although I was sort of personally had like my own, <laughs> my own history with the material, I, I had a fondness for it, but a lot of the things that I said positive about that movie, I can say the same about this. I think that the production value is very, very strong. I think that they're pretty good at delivering boo scares. But what women, Woman in Black 2 doesn't have that the first one did was me being emotionally involved <laughs> with the goings-on. We jump ahead 40 years, and after the bombing of London, uh, a bunch of children who are either orphaned or just need to a safe place to stay while things are being sorted end up going to the familiar Eel Marsh house. And uh, they start seeing creepy things, and they start disappearing, and the woman in black is up to her evil shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically where we start with Woman in Black 2, uh, and that sounds like a fairly strong premise, and I like period ghost movies, and I really like the first one, so why is it that Woman in Black 2 is so forgettable to me? 
thinking the same thing as I was watching it and forgetting every scene as as it was going on. I just saw this movie last night. This was the last one on the list that I saw, um, and it's the one that I think I have the fewest memories of. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of going back to my notes for uh, things that I was thinking about it, but I didn't actually take that many notes because there was just nothing that really stuck out. Uh, and I, I think that might be the answer. That they're just it just had nothing particular going for it it wasn't um it didn't even have like with um awakening it didn't have a reveal at the end to make it memorable or anything like that no it had a really good premise i thought so it it basically had the same premise as the narnia movies where the battle of britain is going on london is getting the crap bombed out of it so children are sent to the countryside where they're like less likely to get bombed they move from one dangerous place to another dangerous place. Yeah. Yeah. And it has the, the added bonus of, for safety reasons, there are blackouts at night. So uh, lights, headlights and stuff, you're supposed to turn all of that off so the, the Germans don't know where to bomb. So you've already got the mood built right in there. It's already tense. It's already dark. Uh, and there's not even any scenes where you're like, why are they in this creepy place? Because they have to be in there creepy place because if not they're getting bombed that's right why is it so dark keep all the lights off like all of that already makes sense um they have so much to work with and then nothing really happens yeah well stuff happens but you just don't care and i'll go even further than that not only is the premise solid and does it work and justify the dark hallways and the reason that they're not leaving the scary house for a movie populated with children and unknown actors I thought that the performances were uniformly strong. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a weird thing where like I've got all these positive things to say, but I just I don't remember the movie very clearly at all. It's like it's one of those shows that you could be watching on TV and during the commercial break forget what you were watching. There's just <laughs> it's, I, I hate to be this mean about the movie. Like, they're trying to sort of revive this old Hammer Studios from, you know, that did uh, The Blood of Dracula and sort of did a, a bloody British riff on all these old classic horror movies, right? And uh, so they're trying to bring back that brand, and I'm all for it. And like I said, I thought that the first Woman in Black, though familiar, was very successful. This is... I took my kids to Callaway Park this summer, and Owen, for the first time, wanted to go into the haunted house... And uh, I, I was one of the first times I really realized just how lame the amusement park haunted house is, you know? <laughs> you, you're looking at a, a bunch of mannequins, you know, through a pane of glass, and a story's being told over a speaker that's going to lead to an inevitable and obvious jump scare. And then you move on to the next room, and then you move on to the next room. Wow, um, that's a great metaphor for what this movie was. Yeah. Um, this is actually where I'm going to disagree with you, and if you're feeling kind of shitty for slagging on this movie, uh, I can take a point on this one because okay. I'm going to say something even less kind than um, you opened up by saying everything was there. Um, for example, the jump scares were there. Uh, one of my big notes is the jump scares really weren't there. Okay. You just know every time some stupid ghost is going to jump out at these people that are giving good performances, but you just don't give a fuck about any of them, or I didn't give a fuck about any of them. Considering children uh, going missing, I should have cared more. Yes. 
again, in the same way that the awakening seemed a little bit paint by numbers, like everything was exactly there, but there was just nothing, nothing special to grip you. Right. Uh, this was even less something special to grip you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like short. And you could. Uh, it's short and sweet too. It's not like the movie takes forever, right? It gets the job done relatively efficiently, but. The original Woman in Black opened with these three little girls playing tea and then jumping out a window, and then a bunch of stills on a bunch of toys. Like, it was creepy before the story got started. I felt them trying to do the same thing yeah. here, but it's just not, not quite to the same degree. Yeah, and you could see, it felt to me like halfway through, they're realizing that there's no engagement with these characters or if, if there's going to be a climax, it's purely going to be a plot point climax and not like a personal climax. So they had this scene where uh, this uh, woman is driving to the house with her pilot, soon to be boyfriend uh, or whatever, love interest. And he starts freaking out as the tide's coming in. And he gets really snappy, and then they make it to the house as the tide comes in and washes out the road. And then he has this really long monologue about when he was in the RAF, his plane went down in the water, and, and all of his um, crew died, they all drowned, and now he's really scared of the water. And it seemed like, kind of like Quint from Jaws, but like you don't care and you don't particularly believe it, yeah. but you know they're setting you up for some sort of a climax at the end where he presumably sacrifices himself to save her from the water which is in fact exactly what happens yeah it's almost like he was fated to drown in a horrible bog yeah and it seemed like it's that whole scene seemed like it was just put there like they wrote it on a sticky note and just attached the sticky note to the the film right It, it didn't feel like it belonged it didn't flow with the movie they just decided at one point that they needed some sort of an emotional climax Yikes. Well, I've already run out of things to say about Woman in Black, too. I'm sorry to be so <laughs> lame. But uh, I think, like, I wonder if this would be a more interesting ghost movie if we hadn't already watched 30 ghost movies between us just for this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a possibility. Uh, it's another one that seemed to be taking shortcuts. Yeah. Uh, so this is another one with game of thrones coloring um to look periody actually this is another thing with the awakening but it's more acute here in that everybody's dressed in period costume except for our hero and she looks like she she looks like you could see her on the street today like she seems like somebody from 2016 that is just hanging around with these people in period costume it doesn't it it just doesn't quite feel right yeah uh, and that could be a budget thing, so it's not really fair to criticize about that too much. Well, a note on historically uh, set films, too. There's this need, because, you know, times have changed, to populate all these historic pictures with super strong females who are willing to strike a man or <laughs> yell at a man or put a man in his place. And that's all great, you know, <laughs> to, to push, you know, that message in the modern age. But it's also, you know, just not true. <laughs> you know, in, in, in certain time periods, especially this one, women just weren't listened to or taken seriously. I'm not endorsing that behavior, but <laughs> that's just the way it was. And if you're going to pretend to be authentic, I think maybe you should be reflecting that 
too. Actually, I, I'm going to take that as a callback to The Awakening. One of the things I thought was they did really well with that in the climax is she's poisoned. You're not sure if she's she dead. Yeah. And then the it fades to black and then and it fades back on her and she's walking down the hallway and she passes these two stodgy old, uh, I don't know what they are, superintendents of the school. They don't and even she look at her. sort of glides past them. Yeah, and then as it turns out, she is alive, but that's just because it's the interwar period and nobody is paying attention to her. Um, I, I thought that was a nice little touch. Yeah. Uh, nicer than anything that's really in Woman <laughs> in Black 2 colon angel of death which was already a bit of a red flag yeah. and why that title and again why is it more interesting to go talk about the awakening <laughs> which we've already reviewed <laughs> than it is woman in black to you i think that is all that we really need to say <laughs> yeah but okay and this has been cruel although i don't think it's been cruel maybe it makes sense we've been talking about how forgettable it is it's also not bad i want to stress that right. it's just it's just bland. It's got nothing really going on, but it's not torturous to watch. No, it just doesn't distinguish itself in any way. Like <laughs> there will be movies, there will be movies that rank lower than this on the list, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I just—it's impossible to get enthusiastic about it. I know you think it's silly, but I really can feel something here, Paul. <laughs> So what are we going to do about it? What if Jacob and May came up for the weekend? She told me once that people pay her to do seances. This house has an energy all its own. We don't need to find the darkness here, Paul. It's everywhere. So I want to talk about this movie directed and written by Dan Gagan, we've decided. Is how we say mm -hmm. that last name? That's according to the internet, and we know the internet is to be believed. This, I think, is an interesting little low-budget number. I mean, this is another one, like I said with The Awakenings, where I constantly thought that I knew where it was going, but as it turns out, I didn't really know <laughs> where it was going. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was surprised by that. The movie surprised me on several occasions. Honestly, Matthew, with the exception of one scene that I want to talk about, I, I there's not a bunch that I would change about this movie. Um, the, uh, it's got people that I like in it. It's definitely made by somebody who understands tone and loves horror movies. And it lulls mm -hmm. you into this feeling of a nice PG ghost movie and then slaps you in the face with a vicious, violent horror film. What did you think of We Are Still Here? Uh, the thing that struck me right away uh, that I thought they did a brilliant job of was making it feel like a movie that was filmed in the 1970s. Yep. So in exactly the same way that the last two movies didn't sell their period quality to me, this one totally did. And it was um, like just simple quality of film, lighting stuff. Uh, it was consistent. And I think it was done done on a pretty low budget like, low. I mean I think it just goes to show that this kind of thing is achievable 
Uh, it was uh, it was shot in upstate New York, but it reminded me of Saskatchewan in the winter, which I really liked. Yeah. I, and in fact, I thought it was filmed in Canada. They had a very 1970s Canadian, um, like one of those tax incentive movies got, yeah. that got filmed in Canada in the late 70s, early 80s. I'm sure that the people who made that uh, movie there was would scene... take that as an insult, but they shouldn't. <laughs> The people that made We Are Still Here? Yeah, might take it I as an insult. I think that's ins- exactly what they were going for. No, but they might take it as an insult that, that they're reflective of a Canadian-made film, right? But uh, it's not an insult. I mean, I, I thought that too. Like, this could take place in Saskatchewan. This would be a cool horror movie that could be set here. It's this really rural, really flat, really large, bleak, white, lonely landscape. Uh, should we talk about the And plot? also... <laughs> Sure, but I just want to clarify my point too about it looking Canadian, uh, which I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily think of as a criticism, but that's also not what I meant. Right. Um, that a lot of the horror and slasher classics from the late seventies uh, and early eighties were actually shot in Canada because uh, the Trudeau administration, in particular, was giving tax incentives. So you would have like corporations that just wanted a tax write-off fund some movie that was never it wasn't a canadian movie it would get released in the states but there was just a bunch of these things churned out in canada um and this just captured the aesthetic of those movies and that genre um particularly of horror movie captured it so nicely for me yeah and i agree the premise is once again shockingly familiar a couple who have recently suffered the loss of their son in a car accident move to a new home in a rural location, meet some very creepy neighbors, and the wife is convinced that she hears her son Bobby in the house. They invite their friends, very amusingly played by uh, Lisa Marie and Larry Fessenden, to come over and help them solve this mystery and decide if the problems are supernatural, psychological, or otherwise. As it turns out, I think they're all three. (laughs) Yeah, um, it does get weird with the multiple antagonists at the end. Yep. <laughs> Where, uh, yeah, there are creepy ghosts living in the house killing people, mm-hmm. but there's also, they're also inexplicably working with the mayor of the town. Uh, this is actually where it's going to get into problem territory for me. I'm not sure, you you said that you liked it all except for one scene, yeah. so I'm not sure if this is what you had in mind, um, the sort of climax. Uh, but before the climax, I guess there was another kind of mini climax. So they first move into the house, and creepy things are happening. Uh, and then, was it the mayor of the town? I, his role seemed a little guy? bit rare, but a little bit hard to put your finger on. He definitely spoke on behalf of the town, and he definitely had a lot of authority. But the way he was playing it is that he was just a guy who lived in the neighborhood who knew his way around, right? But we increasingly right. see that the town kowtows to him a lot. Yeah, so he stopped by uh, on their first night uh, with his wife, who looked really scared. Uh, and he... 
uh, seemed to know just a little bit too much about the people that had lived in the house originally who had gotten run out of town because they why, why were they run out of town? He, he killed somebody? They were, they ran a mortuary. No, he was selling corpses. They ran a mortuary and the story was that the family had been selling corpses so they were run out of town. What we find out right. is that that family was actually sacrificed to the evil and their vengeful spirits are trapped in the house. So now the town, instead of doing the sacrifice to keep the crops growing or to keep this town strong, instead of getting their own hands dirty, they leave the house unoccupied and until it's time to make an offering, and then they sell it to an unknowing couple, and that's sort of their next sacrifice, right? That's how they keep the wheels right. spinning. That's, that's the basic setup. So we, we can be, at the beginning, we're wondering, is it a ghost story? Is it she going crazy? Or are the neighbors out to get her? And... In the end, like I said, it's kind of all three. <laughs> there's a really well. There's a couple of good scenes that that take place at the local bar. Yeah. Um, the first one is when the couple and their séance friends pop into uh, the local tavern for a hamburger, and they go into the bar. And in in um, true small town in movies fashion all the heads turn to them and they're made to feel really unwelcome the, everything drops to dead silence is what i was saying like when they get into the restaurant a bustling restaurant all of a sudden just drops to dead silence you can hear a pin drop because new people the only thing i can compare it to is the slaughtered lamb in an american werewolf in london <laughs> like they hit it pretty hard but it's <laughs> it, it's, it's uh it i liked it i thought it was amusing <laughs> Yeah, I thought that scene was great. And then there was another good scene where um, the bar owner, who had been really suspiciously snotty to them, was talking to her head waitress. And then there was a knock at the door, and she told the head waitress to go answer it. And then there was a gunshot. Yeah. And then it was this old guy who who I thought was the mayor of the town. And then he came in, and, and he's like, okay, there's people. Um, and it was... It was a nice, surprising scene. Like, it was totally aware. You know that something weird's going on, but it just goes to the nuclear option right away. Yeah. And they're just killing people abruptly. Well, honestly... Which that, I thought was great. Because that's funny, because uh, we're agreeing on the movie. I think we both liked the movie, but we seem to be disagreeing on that scene. Because, honestly, that was the scene that I was talking about that, didn't, that I have a big question about. Why did he shoot that waitress? Yeah, so I liked that scene because... It was this is that's about this is about where the movie changed its tone, almost like in the movie Ravenous, where it starts to feel like it's taking a ninety degree turn here. Yeah, um, because it's also going to become a lot more brutal after this scene. I do agree that that was ultimately confusing. So I liked that scene a lot more when I thought it would be explained. Um, but the, there's sort of a recurring problem with this movie, which is that. A lot we get told gets told in exposition dumps. Uh, I think I mentioned that earlier on in the episode that this this is a bit of a theme with some of these movies. Um, But I think it's the owner of the bar and the waitress that have a conversation out of nowhere about how exactly every 30 years this house needs to have a family. So, like, there's a lot of... There's too much specific information that there's no reason for them to be talking about. And then there's not enough information when there ought to be information. Like, why did he kill that waitress? Uh, I mean, she seems to know something about what's going on, uh, um, but we never really find out who knows what or why. Yeah. 
I think for we also me, don't know. For me, it was just strange because uh, they they were finally making conclusively the reveal on the friendly neighbor man. Like we knew something was up. This was the scene where we know he's fucking evil. But these are people that are in the town. These are people that are, are one of the they're, they're on his team. They may be incompetent. He may be angry at them. But honestly, I think it would have been as impactful or more if like. He would ask the waitress something and she was like just vaguely dismissive of him and then he just audit, like shot out and smacked her in the mouth something like really vicious happened the fact that he just yeah. executed that waitress because she didn't told him the restaurant was closed bordered on comic to me well i kind of thought they were taking a comic turn towards the end because there's also going to be a time when the mayor is talking to these two char charcoaly ghosts and he tells them that they should have killed the family in the house. He's like, I'm glad you like killing people, but why didn't you, why did you just decide not to k kill these people? And there was something almost campy about that exchange. Like, well, because again, with the not enough information, we don't ever re we we're never really told what the relationship is between this guy and the ghost. Like why, why don't they just kill him at that point? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, which in fact they do, but why does he think they're not going to? Well, because he thinks that he's giving them what they want in the family. Here's my interpretation, and and I will say that this is my interpretation. So I could be wrong. Um, Bobby, their son, is also in the house. So I think that Bobby is sort of their mm -hmm. the representative to the other side. Um, these are vengeful ghosts, and they're sort of stuck in the house. And they'd be just as happy to bring this vengeance to the town. In fact, the town deserves their vengeance. So by not sacrificing these people, by luring the town in, the coasts can exact their vengeance. I don't think that the parents were in any danger of the ghosts. I think that the ghosts attacked the uh, two kids that came in because they were strangers. They seemed to come in uninvited and they did everything wrong, right? They went down in the basement, right? <laughs> Uh, so those yeah. those kills were just the ghosts doing their job. My interpretation, and again, this is where I came from, is that they had somebody speaking for them on the other side, and that's why the mother and father were scared. Yeah, I think that's I I think that's a great uh, reading of it, uh, but I do think it's significant how far beyond the actual text you had to go to put that reading together because none of that is really told to us so i, I mean I think, you made sense of it in a way that yeah i pardon? think we are conclusively told that bobby is in the house at the very last scene and when i watched the movie the second and third time because i've seen it three times now because i really like it <laughs> um the soundtrack you can actually hear bobby's voice a few times earlier in the film when she says uh, that she can hear Bobby, uh, this actress, Barbara Crampton, who was sort of a scream queen in the 80s and has sort of been reinvented as a character actress in her later life, when she keeps on saying she hears Bobby, this is not a hysterical grieving mother. She hears Bobby. And at first, Bobby's telling them to leave the house. And when they don't leave the house, Bobby's starting to tell the ghosts, you know, don't kill my parents, kill the people who wronged you. No, do you actually hear him say that? You don't hear him say that, but you do hear them say, get out of the house, and you do hear him say, I think, just the word mom earlier in the film. Like, you hear his voice. So it, I, I never thought that, like, I always thought that Bobby was in the house, or at least when we definitively know that there's ghosts. Um, 
you know, I could put that together. I had always imagined that he was using some ghost power to perhaps protect them or to to dissuade the ghosts from getting them. And so then when there's like uh, <laughs> the one black character uh, mm-hmm. who's in the film that predictably gets killed right away, <laughs> yeah. uh, or the two teenagers that were going to have sex, when they get killed, when the parents are out of the house, um, because maybe there's no Bobby ghost to save them. Um, and it just so happens that there's there's this force that's pushing back a, a little bit against these malevolent ghosts and perhaps um, buying them some time, but maybe his powers, you know, he won't ultimately be able to save them. That's what I thought was going on. Your reading of it seems perhaps more plausible to me, but in both cases, we just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, what we do know is Bobby is in the house, or we can be quite sure yeah. from the last scene and that Bobby's in the house. One of the last but we words also out of really a big bad know. are, these people have been in the house for three weeks and they're still alive. Is there something special about them? So clearly there yeah. has been some mitigating factor. Right, and I didn't have problems with any of that. What I had problems with was really not knowing what the relationship was between the town and the house. Right. Like, we, we could guess, but we have to guess. Um, and because there was such dramatic shit that happened, like the angry mob that went into the house basically oh, to kill wow. the family. That was an amazing which was, sequence. <laughs> it wow. was great. It was so fun. Like, there were so many fun kills. Um <laughs> When the guy was doing the seance, their friend, who oh. actually was psychic, it turned out. Yeah. Uh, and then it looked like he was going to kill them, but instead he puts a poker in his own eye. Yeah. That was great. I, I mean, there was there was fun stuff like that. That's also where it felt a little bit similar to the movie Ravenous for me in that it became a slightly different movie, although it became a movie that I really liked watching. Yes. Um, That's Larry Fessenden. He's actually a writer-director. Were... The actor who stabs himself in the eye with that poker is a gifted filmmaker, and I've talked about him in, the, in other podcasts. Usually he's the guy in the movie for one scene and he dies. He's the guy at the end of session nine who shows up for work on the wrong day. Uh, he often <laughs> will show up in these like one-scene roles in horror movies, and I love that he got a whole part in this movie. He still played the same role as the guy who shows up at the wrong place at the wrong time and dies, but his character was much more rich. I actually really enjoyed him and Lisa Marie as this, this like hippie couple that everyone would dismiss, but who are actually kind of legit. <laughs> yeah. No, I liked him a lot. I, I liked him and Lisa Marie quite a lot. Um, in fact, all of the performances I really liked. Uh, one of the, uh, a couple of the things that I noticed right away, um, it had this really long opening um, sequence of them driving up to the house and it was... Uh, two actors that I didn't really recognize, as it turns out, she's uh, what's her name? The Barbara Crampton. The you may know her from Reanimator. Protagonist, Barbara Crampton. You may know her from Reanimator. Yeah, I, I don't. Re- I don't know the movie that well, and okay. it was made like thirty years ago. Um, but I like that it was virtual unknowns. It went for a long time without a single word of dialogue. I liked that. Um, and then when the movie changed tone, I thought it changed tone well. But again, I keep coming back to this. There's at least two scenes that are just pure dumps of information that it felt like the writers just couldn't get it in. And so there's these big, long, clumsy dumps. But even with that, we still don't really get it. Like, it felt like the movie really needed another draft. The directing was spot on, um, but I do think there were script problems. Yeah. 
Well, for me, I love that we started in this world of a PG ghost movie. Then it got elevated into kind of an R-rated, ghostly, gruesome slasher movie. And then it just became a full-on free-for-all bloodletting. I mean, I don't know if we're going to have Jerry's today, but the best death is from this fucking film. There's a woman <laughs> who takes four kitchen knives to the throat and then bleeds out horribly in front of the married couple. Totally deserving of her fate, but it is an absolutely grisly and horrifying death. Like, wow. And uh, because I didn't know what was going to be around each corner, and because I was so happy with what was, I'm pretty enthusiastic about We Are Still Here. And I would encourage any horror fan yeah. to check it out. So, uh, yeah. It, yeah. It, it maybe. Yeah, I thought it was good. It falls short of perfection, but please watch it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's got to be one of well, one of the two most memorable movies on the list. Um, it definitely has a style of its own that it nails, uh, even with what I perceived as the big tone shift um, sort of between the second and third act. I thought they handled that really well. Uh, it just occurred to me as I was going through my notes, the young couple, uh, the ones that came into the house to have sex and then they got killed, the ghost actually chased her out really far she drove away yeah that she was, was kind of like weird wasn't it miles away but the ghosts got her but if the ghosts can leave the house to get people why didn't they get the town that's a good point. and why why hadn't they done that forever like it's those kind of inconsistencies that i think uh, it, it, if they just thought that kind of thing out a little bit more i think it would have been even that much better you're right, because it attacks her while she's in the car. I thought for I had it in my head that maybe they could, were, were were stuck to the house. I don't know. They don't answer every corner of the plot. But while I was watching the movie, I was fully engaged, and I stand by my statement of if you're a fan of horror movies, you should watch this. I stand by that. The Exeter School for the Feeble-Minded. The facility's original purpose was to rehabilitate mentally challenged children. Exeter was not a place where young people found help, but a place where they were discarded and destroyed. It's empty. Yes, this party. No way. Why not? No cops, no neighbors. It's perfect. No. Let's get this party started, right? Don't follow that guy in the woods. That's how rapes happen. You don't want to miss the after party. It'd be crazy. In this place used to be in that house. There's this emo girl on YouTube. I swear she can make herself weightless. If you believe something enough, it affects you physically. Let's do it. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. One, two, three. Um, on the previous episode to this one, Matthew, I was talking to my friend Scott Lehman about remakes. Uh huh. And we reviewed, mm -hmm. uh, for the second time in the Rank and Review history, we talked about the remake of Friday the 13th. I know you have a special fondness for the original Friday the 13th, as do I. The, the director, Marcus, <laughs> Marcus Nispel, uh, did that. He also did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He did the remake of Conan the Barbarian. And uh, he did this, uh, I want to say Outlander movie. I can't remember what, but... This is interesting in his resume and that it's... I guess not a remake of anything, although it is a mix of borrowed ideas. Like, you can see copy-paste elements from a bunch of other movies. It has this real sort of grungy 
Rob Zombie aesthetic to it. It's viciously violent and it has a mean and unpleasant sense of humor. It has to do with a fairly uh, not super likable kid who is manipulated by all of his asshole friends into having this party at this Exeter place, which he is working at and supposedly is supposed to be responsible for. And uh, yeah, they decide that they want to do some psychic shenanigans and uh, end up getting this little annoying piece of shit kid named Rory possessed by a ghost. <laughs> And events just keep on snowballing and getting inc increasingly more crazy and increasingly more violent and nonsensical. Um, I, I have a hard time saying a lot of super positive things about Exeter, but I will not say that it is boring. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> certainly good at constantly throwing shit at you. And there are surprises to be found here and there. It is, like I say, vicious. This is not a PG ghost movie. Like, this is a bloody to the wall Marcus Nispel joint. But it's also kind of a hot mess. Uh, where does Matthew Risley, <laughs> the current rank and review champion, land on Exeter? So I was really surprised just now to, to hear you talk about this director's long and credentialed history uh, <laughs> or the fact that this wasn't basically a, studi or a student production. Yeah. Uh, when I was watching this, I, do, I, I wouldn't have guessed that this was directed by a real director. Um, it felt more like kind of something like... Evil Dead 2, and I'm going to be careful with this comparison because they have almost nothing in common, <laughs> except for that it seemed like there was maybe a student film called Exeter that somebody picked up and thought, okay, it's kind of it's choppy, but there's something there, so let's give it a budget. And so it was like a slightly higher budget version of something that it felt like people were kind of writing as they went along. Right. It um, does have a scene-for-scene scene kind of vibe I, to it, doesn't it? I, yeah. When I saw it, uh, like when it first started, I was a little bit excited because um, this Exeter place, uh, which is a former hospital, right away it had this, these Session 9 vibes to it. I thought, okay, this is going to be one of those ones where you've got like this creepy-as-fuck location that's going to do all of the heavy lifting and just don't get in its way because it's going to do a fine job of most of the work. Nope. <laughs> Um, by the time I was done, it seemed like I was trying to imagine what the pitch was for this movie, but it, it, I, I just assumed it was basically, we got this really cool, scary place. Now, how about we chop up every single horror movie element and not just from ghost movies, but every kind of horror movie, blend it all up and just dump it like a pile of slurry into this, uh, um, creepy location and it should be fine. Yeah. So it's it's just got everything. It's it's like a a sloppy collage of horror movies. Yeah. Like I said, it's a big, loud, hot mess, but it's not boring. But there's a lot of better movies to watch than Exeter. And you're right in that this feels weirdly like lo-fi. It's like, did Marcus Nispel spend all of his money? Like. Has he taken so many box office hits that he was, like, knocked down? Like, what favor was he paying off doing this Exeter movie? <laughs> like, the production value, although not terrible, is clearly down several notches from every one of his other films. I think that the other flaw of the movie, other than, like I said, it just stealing wholesale from other movies, is that there are no likable characters here. 
Did you find anybody worth rooting yeah. for? <laughs> anybody that you liked no. or found charming or funny? One of my earliest notes was that all of the teenagers seemed too much like movie teenagers. Like all of the ones at the party, they were those kind of teenagers that you find in movies that are a little bit too good looking and just a little bit too generic. Like they, oh, they're all kind of like J.C. Penny catalog model teenagers. Um, and the one that's like the stoner party animal is just too much like a stoner party animal. The normal guy is too normal. Like everybody is just too like hackneyed. But I thought that like this kid Rory who gets possessed that they were trying to make us like him. I thought he was supposed to be charming for some reason and that they were just failing fucking miserably. Like I wanted Rory to die. I was bummed that he didn't. Mm. <laughs> it was just this was even by slasher movie standards, a collection of very unlikable kids, I thought. Yeah, and it's kind of um, curious that they didn't... Like, if this is what they wanted to do, which was basically a remake of what should have been a cheapo 1980s horror, just set it in the 80s. Um, it's not, not that hard to do. Basically, they're doing it already with the aesthetic. There are scenes where they're, like, Googling some demon shit on iPads, but you could just have a, a guy that has some sort of esoteric knowledge yeah. that knows that. Like, there's br- nothing about this movie from that the needed library. to be set today. Yeah, there's plenty yeah. of options that they could have gone with. And uh, it's clumsily, like, especially the first, like, half an hour of the movie, very clumsy, I felt like. Yeah. A um, couple of things that stuck out to me as... <clears throat> um, kind of annoying... Uh, these are movies where I or moments where I start to think that maybe this is this movie isn't going to get better. Maybe it's they're not. These aren't directors' choices so much as they're just rushing through it. Yeah. Um, the old I don't know if it was like 1920s black and white footage of the Exeter home when it was still a home for um, the criminal. I don't insane. know how they phrased it at the time. Sanitary. Yeah. They basically um, that, borrowed the same backstory that Session Nine had. But they did a much qu- quicker, lamer version of it. Yeah, they, like the black and white footage, and it's not hard to make something look ch- choppy and black and white. You black and white, white it. You get a few hairs on the uh, on the screen. You maybe take out a, a frame every now and then to make it hop a little bit. But this just seemed like regular digital filming with a black and white filter on it. Yeah, like you it, didn't believe it, it. It didn't really read. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Rory kid was annoying, although when he became the devil kid, I thought he gave an okay performance as the devil kid. He looked devilly enough to me. I thought he was better as the devil kid than he was as a brother whom we're supposed to care about. I'll give you that. (laughs) Um, when, (laughs) I don't know what the deal was. There was this guy that showed up that looked like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Yeah. And he showed up out of nowhere and at this point, I thought maybe it was going to become a bit of a comedy. Um, and he he had a shotgun for some reason. Maybe, like, I want you to help me work through what he was doing there, just in the logic of the film. And then, because then he was... He realized they were trespassing, to... and then he was trying to force one of the girls to have sex with him. And then he got okay. caught and up... And is that why he had showed up in... 
is that why it showed up in the first place? Because he thought there's like a teenager there that I can rape? Yeah. Or well, was he there to protect the building? He was there to supply the movie with a really graphic, dramatic death. But script-wise, no. He comes out of nowhere and he leaves kind of out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially when they later establish how difficult it will be for these kids to leave this place. Like, how did he get in? Like, <laughs> I don't know. And there was this great, uh, poorly considered line uh, where right after Rory, who is now a demon kid because he's possessed from having a seance, uh, kills this guy, uh, one of the friends of our protagonist says, your psycho brother just killed Greer. Like, how do you guys know that his name was Greer? His name is Greer oh. in the script, but he never said, hi, my name is Greer. I'm going to be raping your friend now. He just showed up and was... Oh, Greer. Was it your fucking uncle or something? Yeah. Uh, There are several (laughs) lines like that that really pissed me off. Like, all I wanted to do was drink beer and get laid, and now look at what's happening. Nobody in the history of the fucking world says that line out loud. Even if they think (laughs) it, they don't say it. It's just, it makes me angry. Like, I hate those kind of sloppy writing. Like, yeah. Uh, and like that was the and kid, then, the the sort of chubby kid that we're supposed to like who gets half decapitated and is still attacking people even though a good chunk of his head is missing. In a way, if that kid didn't have all those hard lines to deliver, I could have felt for his death. <laughs> but there's nothing real about any of the characters or anything that's happening to them. Um, just because we were just talking about this character who's apparently named Greer. <laughs> He gets killed by the demon kid, but then they go super into, like, these are kids that are still kind of high from the night before. The brother's a demon. They've just been sexually threatened by this dog, the bounty hunter character, and now they're on to cutting up his body and disposing it in little packages where the police will never find it. It's just, like, there is so much shit that has gone on in what must have been a period of, like, three hours to these kids, and they're just rolling with it. And yes, you're not supposed to be there, and yes, you guys are all high, but when the supernatural shenanigans happen and the bodies start piling up, it's okay. I think the police might be able to look past some of the little shit. You know, it wasn't a good enough reason. Oh, but we've got all these drugs. Well, just leave. Just leave. And uh, yeah, and it's not whole... even like a shooting gallery. It's just a little bit of marijuana. Like yeah. <laughs> they can take a grounding for that. Fucking hide the drugs. Throw the drugs away before the police show up. There's plenty of options. Or the priest that was supposed to be this big twist. That like uh, he was the villain. I can't remember the actor. He was the villain in in uh, Avatar, and he, uh, you know, they're set up to be this big sinister figure, and uh, he seems over interested in one of our main characters, and it's like, oh, he's gonna turn out to be bad. At no point did I expect him to be bad. And then the other thing that happens is one of the characters that's sort of been the right hand to our main character, the Crush Girl in the big dramatic twist turns out to be super evil and involved in you know participating in punishing this priest and getting back at exeter like and again it felt like this last minute script fix like wouldn't it be cool if she was in on it yeah now you're in on it <laughs> you know it, it just... yeah well and i mean just further to that because that that's one of my notes about this how do we learn that she's in on it and she's the ultimate bad guy all along she just tells the guy at the end and again another exposition dump it's like the movie is over 
And then she, or it's essentially over. Everybody's dead except for our two heroes. And then she just goes on forever about her whole backstory being his daughter and she was in the Exeter prison and blah, blah, blah. And she wanted revenge. And like, well, why are you telling him that? Yeah. And like, why not make sense. piece that out over the movie? Here's the, yeah, and it was all very abrupt. Here's the thing that like, I could have even made it like a guilty pleasure. It's so crazy. You should watch the movie. But here's the thing that happened in this movie that I finally just almost stood up and said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. I'm going to guess what it is. Yes. Is it somebody somebody crawling through the air vents and then there's a cat? That, yes. It's a fake cat scare. There's no cat before or after in the movie. For the love of fucking God. Like, I've said it in the podcast before. A cheap jump scare pisses me off. A cheap jump scare with a cat really pisses me off in this movie and you know what it's not even the first hospital set movie to have a fucking cat jump scare (laughs) halloween 2 is set entirely in a hospital and at one scene the fucking security guard gets scared by a cat it pisses me (laughs) off so much fuck you screenplay writer fuck you for doing a cat jump scare and that character by the way who was in you know trying to get them out of the building supposedly in that is the character who turned out to be actively trying to kill everyone. So I don't even know why she was scared. Like, this was all her master plan. (laughs) None of that makes sense. All of that makes me fucking angry. (laughs) Maybe I'm taking Um, it too seriously. Maybe. (laughs) I wasn't sure if the the cat scare was full-on comedy or not. It didn't seem to be played for comedy, but... Like I like, was it the director being passive aggressive or something? It 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 was really really out of place. Because not only why is there a cat in this place, but why is he crawling through the air ducts? <laughs> like of all the places for a cat to be. Um, there were a couple of things that I actually did kind of like about it when the priest is uh so this is after the shit goes down with rory being a demon child um and i don't know when we are towards the end of the first act or somewhere early in the second act um the priest is walking towards exeter and then out of nowhere he gets hit by a car um i think our heroes are trying to drive away and they accidentally run him over and it was just really abrupt like all of a sudden there was a quick paradigm shift uh the same thing happened with when the fat friend gets stabbed this isn't where he he dies but like he he's i don't know hanging out with rory and then he turns around and he just gets a knife in the gut and it seemed um it was quick it was abrupt it wasn't lingered on and i thought it was really nice um there was something just so matter of fact about the way it was done that i thought instead of doing it with a big swell of music or making it overly dramatic it added what was almost an element of creepiness to a movie that had already <laughs> proven that it can't establish creepiness. Yeah. But it was like, if the whole movie had been done like that, it might've theoretically been a good movie or maybe like there were, there, there was moments that I don't want to sh- say it had the potential to be a good movie. There's moments that should have worked when captain asshole tripped and impaled himself on that pickaxe. Yeah. Um, like, uh, that should have been a really, like, oh, yeah. shit, shocking, death by uh, human error type of moment. But I was just too happy to see that guy die to care that it was, like, you know, one of those great accidental moments. The ghost didn't get him. The bad guy didn't get him. Bad luck got him, <laughs> you know? 
Uh, in another movie, I would have really liked it. In this um, movie, it just drifted by. There was the scene when um, what was the other girl? Um, what was her name? There was uh, Ava. Was that the best friend's name? I don't have IMDb. Open anyway, uh, so after Rory gets possessed, he gets unpossessed, uh, and then in another scene, the only other girl in the movie gets possessed. And then she attacks them, and there's this really long, long scene where they're just killing the fuck out of her, which was kind of a fun scene to watch because it was just over the top. Yeah. But also the only other time that they'd seen somebody get possessed, he got unpossessed. So they're really, really thoroughly killing her, like ripping out her eyes and burning her and shit. But as far as they know, this possession isn't a permanent condition. Like, you would think that they would want to restrain her, tie her up or something, but they just they just go for it. And there's this one um, which, fucking surfer-looking dude who spends the whole movie in his underwear. I mean... It, like, yeah, with a Cheeto stuck to his back that yeah. was really distracting. Just, like, at some point, dude, your life's at stake, you know. Put some shoes on, put a shirt on, like, care about your fate. <laughs> care about your life. <laughs> if you want me to care, I have to believe you care. <laughs> It's and just, it just blew my mind how consistent the Cheeto on his shoulder was. Because it, it was obviously there for like, a choice. It was a choice. Yeah, for hours, like a, an hour or so of film, <laughs> which means every time they're getting ready to shoot, they're putting this Cheeto back in the exact same spot. Like, we get why it was there in one scene, because he had passed out on Cheetos, but it doesn't need to be there beyond when he gets reintroduced the morning after the party, which is when sort of the movie really starts getting going. But do they think they're being funny? Like, when they're gluing it on, or they're thinking, this is hilarious, or they're thinking, genius! <laughs> like, who knows? Like... So the other thing that I thought might be a possibility, aside from the fact that this is some young kid's first movie, is it's getting directed by six or seven people all at once, and yeah. they're just sort of tagging off, and it's almost an improv game, and they're directing themselves into the end of a scene and then trying to figure out how the next director will direct them out of it. <laughs> that would be a much more heroic story if that's how it was directed, but... It seems to be directed by something of a washed-up Hollywood director. I, I didn't have great things to say about Friday the 13th, but the guy who made it was not untalented. If this was the first movie that a guy he made, I might, you know, I, I might buy it. But it's like the fifth, and that's sad, you know? <laughs> it sucks for him. Um, yeah, I think that in the 22 minutes, and it has been almost 22 minutes that we've been talking about this now, you and I have put way more thought into this movie than anybody <laughs> involved in the production. What is the supernatural? Hmm? Anyone? Ghosts? No one here believes in ghosts. What if you could prove that the supernatural was merely a manifestation of what already exists in the mind? Welcome to the experiment. Are you a believer? get it on film this is a movie that kind of came and went really quickly it's another one of the hammer horror studios so same production company that was involved with the woman in black movies this is called the quiet ones it's supposedly based on true events in quotation marks um 
We had talked in previous episodes of this character of the uber-hostile skeptic. This person who doesn't just be- not believe in the supernatural, but is vaguely angry about it, like just aggressive. For me, the supernatural is, is so much the you know area of fiction and, and, and horror movies that I don't really think about it in any other spectrum. But if you're a serious you know scientist and you want to try and study something, the goal would be to keep objectivity. And objectivity in a scientist does not make for interesting filmmaking. So what we see again and again in these movies is like the skeptic character as this horrendous, uncompromising asshole. Here played by uh, Jared Harris, we're going to be talking about him again in the Poltergeist remake. He and a selection of his favorite students and a new fellow that named Brian who he hires to document the experiment are going to try and cure uh, this young woman who has been exhibiting possession and supernatural like symptoms throughout her life and when the funding gets cut at school he says fuck it we're gonna take her out to a nice remote location and we're gonna hash it out and basically he you know her his means of helping her is to torture her and we see a rising sort of series of is it or is it not supernatural events? And uh, yeah, um, I, I I might take a little bit of it issue with saying his way of helping her is to torture her because he's not like it's not all torturous the things that he's doing. He's trying to do like he's isolating her, which is certainly not good. Uh, he's doing hypnotherapy and making her linger on unpleasant things but what other what other things does he do that you think are torturous well he seems more interested in getting his results than he is in her personal well-being or safety now we understand through the uh, revelations later in the script that he has a personal investment that you know that becomes part of a reveal and that his son used to have a similar problem and you know he'd but unable to help him because his wife, who was religious, basically moved away with the son and, and took him away. So his failure in his son is all invested in him trying to succeed in curing this young woman. The movie tries to take advantage quite a bit of the sort of found footage aesthetic. There's a lot of sequence where we're getting the point of view of the camera. But whenever the camera gets knocked over and obliterated, they have the safety net of just falling back on straight cinema. So there's a bit of yeah. variety style. It's set in the 70s. It's uh, British, you know. There's a lot of sort of interesting balls in the air. Um, and that's, I guess, what I would say about the movie. It's interesting. I don't know that it's scary. I don't know that it's great. But it held my attention. Yeah, I thought it was quite well directed. Um, um much like we are still here, I thought they did a good job of uh, capturing the 70s aesthetic. It felt more like something like Amityville Horror, like or even similar in quality to The Exorcist, like one of those, so not like the, the cheap quota quickies that that um, uh, We Are Still Here was challenging, but like one of those honest to goodness 70s go of movies. Um, the, the costumes were good. Uh, it had that period feel. Weirdly, when it went into black and white, when they were looking at film from from the previous 
sessions. person that had experienced these possession symptoms. Um, it did the same thing with black and white that Exeter did, where it just felt like they were just running dressing up footage digital footage putting... to look like film. It's like changing. Yeah, but yeah. like even barely dressing it up, it it that that part like weirdly kicked me out, considering how well they were doing at making it look like an authentic seventies ghost movie. Yeah, like there's something Pardon? about the Balwickachow seventies. A lot of actors feel a real need to push the groovy man or or make like referential disco shit. There was none of that. They all looked and felt seventies, and that was enough. Um, it was never entirely clear to me if all of the scenes in shaky cam were meant to have been filmed by, um, Brian, uh, I don't know, Brian, um, <clears throat> because there were some like the very end, uh, in what turns out to be, I guess, almost the climax, uh, where, uh, it turns out that the woman that is, is going through these experiments really is possessed by some sort of a devil and she locks him in like her solitary confinement room and then burns down the hospital. A lot of that was filmed on shaky cam when he couldn't have been holding it. Like there were some of the, some of the tensor scenes were on shaky cam incidentally. And then some of the shaky cam scenes were there because they were being filmed on shaking cam. And this variety style, um, Directors like what's his name who did like a lot of the Bourne uh, movies uh, will do that where they have the shaky camera, but it gets confused when you mix it with actual found footage. This movie doesn't pick an alley, right? When it gets scary, it goes to the found footage. When it cuts out of the found footage, if it's still scary, they've got the verite style, but they're still using their main lenses. Right. Uh, and that, I guess, yeah. can be confusing in its aesthetic, but I understand why they're doing it. It's more out of the feeling than out of the look, strangely. Yeah, I didn't actually mind it too much, although I was watching it with somebody and she was getting really in- annoyed But uh, about, like, she was seeing a lot of inconsistencies in it because she assumed that it was found footage when it was shaky cam in the movie. Yeah, I guess, as you said, it didn't choose an alley, so... Yeah. It would be very easy to mistake this as sloppy direction. I didn't mind that the scarier scenes were in shaky cam, and I had never, I never really thought it was, I didn't read it as a found footage movie, but there was enough, like, when my friends started complaining about it, I started really wondering, like, what were the rules, like, what rules had the director set up between when it goes to steady cam or when it goes to shaky cam, um, and there was just enough found footage in it that it confused it does itself. raise the question yeah it's basically when action is happening or when scary is happening all of a sudden we get shaky cam and when it's not it's very composed it's very 70s dare i say there's not a lot of quick cutting they're more long shots they kind of let the dialogue play out um and, and I like sort of the open air ambience that they catch the creepy floors of the room and, and like let let it look and feel 70s but use a very modern approach to the filmmaking. I think that that's something that people who review movies or pay attention to that stuff notice way more than others. I think that if you're watching the movie and scared by it, the shakiness of the camera is sort of reflective of the, the craziness of what's going on and you don't even really register it. Uh, well, I didn't register it until it was brought up and then I, I couldn't unsee it right. and it was starting to 
distract me a little bit. Fair enough. I was trying to defend uh, the movie as like these are director's choices, but then I couldn't figure out when, like what was going on when, or like I couldn't figure out what the rules were. Anyway, uh, I think you're right though in the um, in the scenes where we're supposed to be scared, it gets shakier. I had a hard time putting my finger on the Jerry um, Harris character too. Like, is he supposed to be an out and out villain? Are we supposed to be at all sympathetic towards him? Do his decisions make sense when all is said and done? Uh, no, well, so I liked his character. Uh, maybe it's because I like the actor and I, I'm uh, impressed by his performance, particularly because he's in the next movie that we're going to talk about as well. And I thought he gave a totally different performance in both of those. And so I, I maybe I was getting sympathetic to the actor. The, the character that he was playing was obviously driven and was obviously a, not even going to say a dick. He was not a sensitive person person but i could imagine in his reality he was doing what was best he just really wanted to make this young woman better um i mean he's an oxford professor in the 1970s so when we find out that he's having sex with another one of his grad students i mean that's just that's part of the course like a little bit icky i suppose (laughs) but it happens it's not yeah it's not villainous or anything he read as a character that was ambiguous enough for me that was was kind of interesting that he could go either way but when we find out uh why it is that he's driven you know uh, retrospectively everything makes sense and there were no moments when i thought he went over the top with how harmful he was being to this young woman um this was a time of when people were doing extreme therapy stuff i mean we were talking earlier about uh reconstructed memories uh, the whole the whole way that that came about and that whole scandal about people uh, remembering satanic cult in the 80s, yeah. it was born out of this psychology that was really irresponsible in retrospect, but it was consistent. I thought it was consistent with this being a 70s movie, Yeah, like a movie set in the 70s. Uh, I, I would have been more kicked out of the movie if he had taken what we would now think of as proper precautions. Yeah. And again, I, I think that a lot of the stuff that would make us angry today, you can justify because it's a period movie. In a way, they helped themselves by setting it in the 70s. Because uh, there's no real reason that this story couldn't be set today other than they wanted to throw the based on the true events. I have no idea of the actual <laughs> circumstances that this is supposedly based on anyway. <laughs> I don't have any knowledge. Uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was based on... Um bunch of academics out of the University of Toronto, actually, in the 1970s, and they were just doing seance stuff. Uh, the results were all inconclusive. Nobody claimed to have been possessed by a devil or anything. It was just, it was an early uh, psychology foray into the possibility of the supernatural, one of those times where science decides to test it. Um, nothing dramatic happened like this. You know, when there's that scene where she was puking out an ectoplasmic worm or a teleplasmic worm, I thought, yeah, that, that's something that could have happened in real life. That's fairly conclusive evidence, we- kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also- uh, actually, if I ever see somebody puking out a tele- teleplasmic worm, I think I'll probably, uh, some of my skepticism will start to dissolve away a little bit. I certainly did rec- uh, recognize the uh, hot blonde and her boyfriend as being the people who were going to die. <laughs> earlier in the film like the reveal that jared harris was sleeping with that girl was neither surprising nor interesting to me um i just knew that when the stakes ramped Mm -hmm. up that those two characters would be expendable and uh, 
that they would. I, yeah. I, I, I was actually of, a little surprised how late into the movie they died. Yeah, I suppose. He kept on thinking they were going to die and then they wouldn't. And then, you know, finally <laughs> got around to it. I didn't want them to die necessarily. I didn't. I thought they were well acted. I thought the movie was genuinely well made. But their role in the movie was to, you know, become skeptical and be afraid and then die. Right? That that That's just what it was. It was basically a clash between Brian and the doctor character. And obviously, whether or not they could save this poor, possessed woman. Uh, and it was a tug of war. It's an interesting movie. I mean, I'm not enthusiastic about it. I'm not unenthusiastic about it. Um, it, it. It may rank artificially high on this list because there's a few other movies on this list that are just fine so uniquely unmemorable. <laughs> it's all right. If you're into ghost movies, you can do a lot worse than The Quiet Ones. And do seek it out in, in one way because it's one of these ones that just sort of went by. I think a lot of people missed it. Also, I think we're, we're um, maybe not selling enough that there were some genuinely, there were some genuine good jump scares. Like there was the seance scene um, where everything went dark and they were trying to figure out what was going on. And I mean, I guess I'm describing a lot of scenes here. Um, but the one particular seance scene uh, that ends with the doctor getting his hand bit, that right. one had me guessing the whole time what was going to happen. Nothing terrible had happened yet. There was enough there was enough stuff going on that we kind of expected there would be something beyond, say, a cat jumping out of a, an air duct. Like no we thought something anywhere. real would happen. <laughs> no cats find... anywhere. Yeah. Um, and it's ambiguous enough that there's still stakes. Even well into the second act, we don't know the extent of what can happen in this movie, but not in, like, an exit or what the hell is going on kind of way, but in the director is withholding and we feel like it's building to something uh, which is a question i have for you uh did it build to something what did you think of the climax okay we'll just go to spoilers i guess um our, our main character brian the you know guy who was just hired who came into this as an outsider and wanted to save this girl ends up a believer and kind of crazy and uh, we are told that all of his footage has been erased so he has no proper explanation to what happened like likely he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison or in a psych ward and i can't help but feel like i should have felt more i i, I should have felt more impact from that ending i didn't hate the ending but i wasn't like oh that sucks dude i was like well and now i can get on with my day <laughs> you know the quiet ones is over i kind of felt like we, we wanted us to be hurt by that ending yeah, I was actually thinking of the climax more even when um, uh, Jane, who turns out to be this Evie character who's this uh, either a figment of her imagination or a ghost or something, turns out to be real and sort of this demonic possession. And then she does a bunch of violent stuff. And it's not entirely clear what's going on, but she's killing everybody. It seemed to me, and maybe this is why the ending didn't, really leave much of an impact on you because no decisions it seemed were really made like it was just stuff where stuff was happening because it was towards the end of the movie but there wasn't any i don't know it just didn't feel like there was a lot of agency on the part of these characters so it was eventually going to go really about. wrong and then surprise surprise it eventually went really wrong 
I think like it's just yeah. a, there's something inevitable about the movie. You get the trajectory of the movie. They do an experiment, it kind of is a little bit creepy. They do another one, it's a little bit creepier. It gets a little bit darker. They do another one, it goes a little bit worse. And yeah, they just keep on pushing it until bodies pile up. And uh, it makes it's more interesting mm-hmm. for the viewer that way. But you know, it's it sort of stresses credibility a little bit. It's a fun yeah. It felt to me. I felt disappointing because I I I really thought that they were building to something right up until the climax, and then the climax was so much exactly like you might think it would be that. Like, I guess they were technically building to it, but it felt like the buildup was quite good. And then it just sort of ended on this kind of flaccid, predictable, the end with a question mark moment. Right. Well, and I guess the end with the question mark is so, where yeah. I leave you on the review. Like, uh, I think that people who like ghost movies, they would do themselves well to watch the quiet ones. I would recommend it before I recommended a lot of other movies on this list. For sure. Their problems. Uh, <laughs> Very, very competently directed, very competently acted, some real moments of genuine uh, creepiness, if not scariness, but maybe scariness, but a little bit, leaving me a little bit flat at the end. I can't believe Maddie! Maddie? Madison! We have to call somebody. You can't call the cops. What are you going to tell them? First things first, your daughter is here. And she's alive. This development was built on a cemetery. This isn't just a few pissed off spirits we're dealing with. It's a poltergeist. We just want our daughter back. The door in their world could close at any moment. If that happens, there's no getting her back. I want you all to clear your minds. They already know what scares you. One of the many movies that we reviewed together, I can't remember what it was, or else I wouldn't say it. You referred to uh, having a visceral pointlessness to it. I can't remember which one that was either. Um, I'm not saying that, like... Good good job, me. (laughs) Good job, Matt. Um... There's something even before I saw this remake of Poltergeist that that sort of those words echoed in my mind. Like, there's a visceral pointlessness to remaking Poltergeist. There's no way that it's going to be as effective to me as the original was just because of who I was and where I was when I saw it. And I knew that it was going to go, you know, have an uncommon level of baggage to it. It did not do very well. It seemed like people did not want it to do very well. There's been fallout to this Poltergeist movie. There was so much shit about it before I even saw it that I I wondered that I could even be objective, right? So (laughs) here's what I will say about this Poltergeist movie. It's not good, but it's not awful. It really isn't awful. I honestly don't think it's awful. I just think it's bad. Um, I think what goes a long way to me in, in saving it is Sam Rockwell and Rosemary DeWitt uh, grounding as a very real couple to me. Um, so I liked them enough that I wanted to like the movie more. <laughs> uh, I'm actually going to go even further and say almost all of the performances were really, really good because once again, uh, Jared Harris, who I thought was once again very good in this, um, and... 
Jane Adams, who I uh, I was looking her up on IMDb. It turns out that her and Jared Harris were a hot on-screen couple together in a little-known movie called Happiness, one of the awful movies, uh, awful in a great way, from the 1990s. <laughs> the entire starring cast, uh, with the exception of perhaps the teenage daughter, they're all these really good character actors, and they're all doing a pretty good job with with material that is just not helping them do a, a pretty good job. But the the performances are all solid. It's it, the, all of them keep this movie from sinking like a stone to the. I don't want to follow this metaphor anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I don't want to say that they saved the movie because the movie certainly isn't saved, but they keep it kind of watchable. Yes. It's watchable. Um, I will fall back on watchable. If it was on in a plane, I wouldn't turn it off. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I have reviewed so many worse movies on this podcast than Poltergeist. But the thing is, is that even if this movie wasn't called Poltergeist, I think it would be a bad movie. But I think a lot of the reason people hate the movie is because it's called Poltergeist. Fun fact about the director, Matt. He directed a mm-hmm. children's movie called Monster House. I got my kids halfway through it and they couldn't handle it. It was too scary and they have never watched it since. And uh, my friend Scott Lehman, who was who co-hosted the previous episode with me, I found out his son had the same reaction. He calls His son calls Monster House the scariest movie he's ever seen. This is not this guy's first haunted house movie, and it's not his first stab at the family genre. I was really on his side in a lot of ways when I heard he was directing it. That's all to the side of this, but because I had a soft spot for the director who made a way too scary kids movie, and because I have a total man crush on Sam Rockwell, his my love affair with Sam Rockwell has been well documented on this podcast. I'm sure if he listened to it, I'd have a restraining order or something. <laughs> but uh, I just love the, you know, it's the classic template. This family moves into a house. Uh, they're a little bit prisoners of poverty. The marriage isn't exactly on the rocks, but things aren't great. And I like and cheer for them. And they're already in a bad place. And it gets a lot worse because these fucking ghosts show up. <laughs> yeah, there are some ways in which I think they actually improved on the original. Uh, and even many more ways where I think... Well, and then there was a lot of moments of homage to the original ones where I thought they they at least treated it respectfully. I don't know if they really approved on the material, but it wasn't... They weren't just trying to hit the same beats for the purpose of hitting the beats. They were trying to update them, but in a respectful kind of way. So, for example, there's this scene where Sam Rockwell is... <laughs> he gets scared and he's drinking vodka or something <clears throat> and then it turns into worms in his mouth and he starts puking out these worms i think that was a, a reference to poltergeist 2 where yeah. uh coach craig t nelson who's an alcoholic for about coach. 15 minutes and jerry award winner right <laughs> uh, for that scene actually right because yeah. he pukes out some sort of a claymation worm i believe so like the monster, sam yes. rockwell so you know it was nice to see the vomit monster called back to 
there's a scene at the end when they're trying to leave the house after the daughter I'm just jumping ahead in this movie yeah. um, after the daughter's rescued from the TV and then they try to drive away but then the car gets stuck in the supernatural quagmire which means means they can't, can't run away um, that was actually I thought a lot better than the original one where the daughter gets sucked into the TV they hire psychics they get her out but they need a, a superfluous fourth act of more horror in the house so it just has them staying there for one last night where yeah. there's no way they're spending another night in that house at least in this one they um, try they to get out of the leave. house they are physically not allowed to leave and that that's stronger you're right but here's a few things that I think we're, are missing in, okay. in, in the 80s the sense of wonder that whole Spielbergian sense that I talked about I think when we reviewed Poltergeist there was equal parts sort of discovery and wonder before things got really uh -huh. freaky was pretty much entirely lost and I felt that and in, yeah it happened quickly yeah in the 80s too I think that um, Poltergeist was about as cutting edge special effects they were pushing it as far as we'd ever seen any ghost movie ever push it like it was as much a sort of visual spectacle as it was a thrill ride at the time. When you watch Poltergeist today, it feels less of a visual spectacle because we're no longer in the 80s. But I kind of felt if you're going to call your movie Poltergeist, you sort of need to bring that. It's the same way when Peter Jackson remade King Kong. He just pulled out all the stops because King Kong was trying to be the biggest, loudest spectacle that anyone had ever seen. And he earnestly tried to meet that bar. I don't think they tried to meet the bar of Poltergeist in a lot of respects. Yeah, and so then there were some things where I thought they were just going through the motions. So, for example, they need to have the young daughter sucked into the TV. And in the original Poltergeist, I think all three of them, there was that creepy blonde kid that was sitting in front of this static key TV and then in her sing-songy voice saying they're here or they're back depending on which movie in this one you have the kid sitting in front of a creepy static key TV but it doesn't work because HD TVs these days don't go static key in the same way so it seems like the HD TV show was just playing the static show or something like it they they needed to have that uh, well, they thought they needed to have static on a TV, but it could have been anything. Like they could have found it, another way. It didn't way. have to be exactly that shot. Yeah. yeah, and if they're updating, if they're not setting it in the 80s, then... And it seems nitpicky, but it's not, because it's just one of the many things that kind of boots you out of the movie or makes you makes you quite aware that you're watching a remake. It's as simple as it uh, being the other an one old is... TV that was left in the attic or in the basement. Like, it seemed like an easy fix. Yeah. It seemed like something that could have been dealt with better. Yeah, which would have made total total sense. Because in this one, it's an old house to begin with. So, uh, who knows? Maybe somebody... There was something creepy about the TV, so they put it upstairs. And yeah. then the family rediscovers it. And, you know, it's like this... Conduit. This kind of cursed fetish object or whatever. Uh, the other one is, as you said, it was clown-focused in its um, um, marketing, which... Uh, we talked about this a little bit with The Conjuring. I think the whole clown doll thing is getting a little bit played out, particularly the ones that look deliberately evil. There's no way that was In ever this a one, child's toy. That was just an evil-looking yeah. fucking clown. Yeah. Yeah. 
So in this one, the clown on the cover is like one of those stupidly way too evil looking clowns. But in the movie, Sam Rockwell finds this box of clowns in his daughter's room and they're or his son's room. I can't remember. Um, And they're genuinely creepy in that like expressionless porcelain doll kind of way. But why is there a box of clowns in that room? Because that's not something where they were will we ever get the sense that there were these haunted clowns that people were putting away? There was just like a box of clowns that it seems a little shoehorned in. Yeah. Under thought. And maybe, maybe there was a deleted scene. The other aspect is the, the Jared Harris and the fact that his ex-girlfriend or ex-wife sort of, uh, uses this supernatural adventure to repair their broken relationship. <laughs> that sort of weighed heavily on the movie. As much as I like both of those actors, I just think they were served a lousy meal in the script there. <laughs> I, I With Jared Harris's character, I like the actor too, but like he could have lived or died and my reaction would have been the same at the end of that movie. We get a last-minute reveal that he's, he's not only alive, but they're together and they're hosting shitty reality TV together, right? And... Uh, my reaction to that would have been equal to the fact that he, you know, led the ghosts to the light and died with them. <laughs> that doesn't say a lot. For yeah, I mean, that, that that tacked on uh, scene at the end that shows that he's still alive, which sort of feels like the movie wasn't testing well and they were just desperately trying to do something that would make the audiences like it or sorry, dislike it less. That part felt tacked on. But generally speaking, I thought he surprisingly rose above the material for me. I was expecting a character, like just some annoying con man character that I would would be hoping that he would be dying throughout. But I thought his character was actually maybe the most interesting of them to me. Like, again, a genuine psychic who seems like he's not going to be, and he's got a schlocky show on reality TV, but actually he knows what he's doing, but you can't make... He's on the yeah. level, and you don't expect him to be on the level. The twist is that he's on the level. <laughs> but that wasn't even, like, they didn't linger on that twist. They didn't milk it more than it had to be. It sort of seemed like, you just as you get to learn more about the character, he has more to reveal. Yeah. Um, which I can't. I mean, I think I'm being more generous with this movie than it deserves. I'm, I'm not saying that this is a good movie, but I, I did think the performances were genuinely good. Um, and it it did scream of pointlessness, but there were moments where at least I, it seemed like somebody in the cast kind of liked the source material, or if the script was shitty, at least the actors were being professional about it, yeah. director was... I think being professional about it. It was a good swing, but um, to try and remake Poltergeist was a was a tough one. It was a it was a, it was a tough road to hoe. I don't think it deserves its crappy reputation, but I think that this didn't need to be remade. Uh, I don't know who I'm quoting here, but the, there may just be a visceral pointlessness to the movie. <laughs> no matter how much Sam Rockwell dances. Uh, and, and, you know, tries to sell it to me. I just don't need this movie. I don't need it. Uh, Well, I'm reminded about the latest, uh, this will be already horribly dated by the time this comes to air, uh, but the Tempest in a Teapot that we're living through right now having to do with the Ghostbusters remake, uh, where, as it turns out, it's it's not nearly as horrible as you might expect, 
Um, and it's actually, in my opinion, yeah. I actually think this Poltergeist remake was better than Poltergeist 2 and way better than Poltergeist 3. But, I mean, unlike those, it, it, it's... I, I can still enjoy those for their time capsule feel. This, this, I mean, I guess in twenty years this will have a time capsule feel, but it just doesn't feel like much. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's not memorable, uh, and that's too bad. Yeah. All right. So starting at number six, I'm going. I think this shouldn't surprise any of the judges. Uh, Exeter, okay. the movie is a total mess uh there are it's not exactly a totally pointless mess like there there are a couple of moments in that movie where you think that people might be enjoying what they're doing uh but most um it's just too many movies crammed together into one haunted hospital uh next i'm gonna go woman in black 2 um Kind of well made, I guess, but just utterly boring and forgettable. The kind of movie that you forget as you are watching it. In third place, the final in the Poltergeist installments, uh, it gets all the way to six, or all the way to six, all the way to three, uh, basically on the strength of the performances. Um, this is not a movie that I would recommend, but it's not really hate worthy either. It just, it's just kind of blah. Yeah. Um, next. We have The Awakening, which I think was well-crafted. A couple of decent jump scares, but overall it was just kind of dull. Uh, next, we have The Quiet Ones, which I thought was well-filmed. Uh, uh, the direction was good. Uh, the climax really let me down. Um, there's Again, it was... It was almost really good, and then it got to be just kind of good enough. And in first place, and a movie that I think is like one draft away from greatness, uh, I would say We Are Still Here uh, really captured the feeling of a trashy 70s um, movie, obviously directed with a lot of skill and a lot of love. Um, it started out being an interesting, well-directed horror movie, and then or ghost movie, and then it became this weird psycho killer, angry mob, blood romp. Um, good performances and a good movie all together. The thing that's stopping it from being greatness is there was quite a lot left unexplained. I am angry at myself right now because we're so close. Uh, we're so close to matching. <laughs> And my, my reasoning is, it, it, uh, I hate myself. I'm going to lose sleep over this. <laughs> How did you fuck me, Larry? Here's my justification for putting Woman in Black 2, Angel of Death, in last position. I watched it for the, okay. I watched it for the second time for this podcast recently, and I had no fucking memory of it. Just a few days, that was two days ago <laughs> that I watched it again. <laughs> And as we were reviewing it, Matt, I was struggling to find plot points to talk about. Like, it just doesn't hold my attention. And it should. Like, I like these old dusty historic ghost movies. I really liked the first one, maybe more than it was worth. I mean, I, I would still say I recommend the first one. I don't recommend the second one. But Exeter, I put to fifth place because as much as it is a hot mess of a movie, <laughs> it's kind of a memorable Hot mess of a movie. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the the last place 
Uh, it's usually pretty easy to, <laughs> I mean, usually match with your guests on last place, if nowhere else. <laughs> but, um, the thing is, The Matt, two worst ones were bad for totally different reasons. Yeah, but the thing is, is that other than that, our, our list is just identical. <laughs> and and to, 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 for it to go wrong over fucking Exeter really, really tears my ass. Because yes, the Poltergeist movie is not great, but you can see a lot of really talented people trying to make it great, and like, it, like I, I'm on I'm on their side. I kind of feel for everyone involved. It almost feel like this movie was doomed for failure, but uh, it's not as bad as everyone says it is. It just isn't, but it sure ain't great. In third position is The Awakening, probably the most industry standard ghost movie that we have here. And I recommend it for that. It may not have, uh, it may not be as surprising as it wants to be, or as memorable as it wants to be, but it's a, a solid enough ghost movie. Uh, the Quiet Ones is trying some things. It's got sort of that uh, found footage vibe, which I'm a fan of. A lot of people don't like found footage, but I think when done well, it can be very emotionally effective. Um, well acted and a, a period movie that doesn't feel overly distracted by being a period movie. Uh, I fucking love We Are Still Here. I mean, I know that there's problems and I acknowledge it, but this is a movie that starts feeling like the original Haunting and ends feeling like Evil Dead 2. And that is a compelling journey to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really, really get off with that movie. And like, I've seen it like three times and I know I'll watch it again. And I know it's one of the movies on my shelf when people are like, well, Larry, you like horror movies. What's a good horror movie to watch? Yeah, check this one out, because a lot of people miss this one. And, uh, yeah, and it would be really easy to miss, particularly from the cover, which I the, the cover does such a good, good job of seeming like a cheap 1970s ghost movie that it kind of looks like it might be one, so it wouldn't necessarily grab your attention. I can't understel, undersell the level of violence in the third act. Like, did we did we say how crazy the violence is? Like, it's Gallagher seats. It's really fucking bloody. And I think we definitely could have said more about it, for sure. So, um, it's just great that I think I'm watching this nice family sort of PG ghost movie about this, this couple healing the wounds of their lost child, and that it turned so brutal. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I like I like where this guy's head's at. So uh, in number one, we agree. We are still here. It's the one that I'm definitely the most enthusiastic about recommending. This is one that it brings something new. It's the kind of it's 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 unique. Yeah. Thank you so much for participating in the 80th episode of Rank and Review. Send some Rank and Review uh, love to the good people of Toronto, will you? Shall do. it no more ghosts for matt not for a while maybe one or two will sneak in and some random list somewhere but as a theme we're done with ghosts matt's gonna start talking about psycho killers or science fiction or i have this feeling maybe just maybe monsters from the deep 
but that all has to do with Rank and Review Future. And if you want to have your say about Rank and Review's future, you should send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Also, please leave me a positive review. A four or five star review on iTunes is super helpful to my show. I would really appreciate any of those iTunes people out there doing that. Just a two sentence review and that four or five star click. That gets me new listeners every time and I really appreciate it. Those likes on Facebook are good for my morale. So if you could like the Facebook page, that would be super awesome. But the main and best way to help the show is to tell that other movie lover in your life that there's this podcast called Rank and Review and that it's out there waiting for you. And in two weeks, you'll hear episode 81. Thank you.